Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you as always. A show that is produced as always by Bobby Blanco, who is uh, recently engaged, Brendan. Yay. Quite exciting. You yeah. sounded excited through that. Congratulations to Bobby Blanco for uh, yeah. popping the question. Big congrats. Getting the, getting the yes. That's, That's the, the most mo- important part. <laughs> that yeah. really is, if you think about it. Got the yes, as he says in the background. Yeah. Quiet, Bobby. This is our podcast. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Your moment is over. This is ours. <laughs> this is, we take it from here. Thank you very much. Uh, w- just to date this podcast, what a win for the Ravens last night, Brendan. Yeah. I mean, Lamar. Any any other thoughts you want to offer on that? I mean, Lamar's accuracy last night. There's been a lot of chatter Pinpoint. about uh, Lamar Jackson not being the most accurate passer. I think he was 37 of 42 last night. Also, Justin Tucker has a ton of stands. Is there a bigger Justin Tucker stand than Grayson Rodriguez? I don't think so. He tweets. He's got he's got the Justin Tucker helmet. He said he put the visor in it. He will tweet for like a Justin Tucker kickoff. Like that's how excited he is. Yeah. Which is strange because you'd think he would be, you know, he is he's tweeted about Lamar and, and stuff, but you'd think a pitcher would be more inclined to follow a quarterback more closely than a kicker. But you would think. Yeah. But it is it is fun to have a, a literal Justin Tucker stan account in the form of Grayson Rodriguez's Rodriguez. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, he was took a picture of himself with the helmet on last night watching the game, I think, and posted <laughs> That's incredible. It. So we asked somebody to take that picture of him on the couch wearing a helmet watching nice. the game. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Um, all right, Brendan. Shall we get into the, the baseball talk? Because Let's do it. Because we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about as, as playoffs are underway around baseball, not too many... You know, not too much news to do with the roster in the short term. So we're going to look back at the 2021 season from a minor league perspective. We're going to offer our minor league superlatives. Talk about the best performances from some of the minor leaguers that you may not have heard about. You know about Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman and Kyle Stowers and those guys. But we're going to hand out specific superlatives. And then later on in the show, we're going to compare the Orioles' rebuild Two other rebuilds around baseball. Just how far have the Orioles come in their rebuild now that they, we we think, are going to start turning the page more to winning? And just where the Orioles' rebuild stacks up against some teams that have undergone similar processes over the past few years. Yeah, and it's important when you're looking at the Orioles' rebuild. Yes, obviously you are comparing them to the other teams in the majors as a whole, but it's not really all that fair to compare the Orioles to other teams in the AL East at this point because they are at very different places. So I think it's a necessary conversation to have to say, okay, here are some other teams around the league that have not had good records over the last few years. How are those teams' rebuilds going? Are they comparable to the Orioles? How are they stacking up? against what Baltimore is doing. Right. So let's start with the superlatives because we all hear about the names previously mentioned, the Rutschmans, the Rodriguezes, the Hall, even though he had a shortened season because of injury this year, the Stowers. But we want to look at specific achievements accomplished by this very deep farm system. Brendan, you are handing out the first superlative, and that is most improved 
minor league prospect. Yeah, most improved. This is one that probably could have gone to Kyle Stowers, who had a fantastic season in 2019. He obviously uh, only had an OPS of 667, and he starts in Aberdeen, gets all the way up to AAA Norfolk this year. So Kyle Stowers, a pretty obvious candidate for most improved, but I wanted to get a little bit creative with it and give some other guys credit where it's due. And I want to look at Robert Newstrom. In 2019, in High A Frederick, he played just 31 games and hit two homers with an OPS of 629, had a slugging percentage of just 344. And if you've heard anything about Robert Newstrom this year, it's the absolute monster home runs that he has hit. So in those two years, fast forward to this year in 2021, he starts the year at Double A Bowie, which is already a level jump for Newstrom has an OPS of 831 in 62 games there, then goes up to AAA Norfolk in 64 games, has 25 extra base hits and an OPS of 748, and the slugging percentage has gone up, the power numbers have gone up. So Robert Newstrom went from a guy that not a lot of people were talking about in 2019 to somebody who has really flashed this year. Yeah, the, the batting average was not particularly high at Norfolk, 232 this year, but the power is what you're going to get from right. a Robert Newstrom, especially considering he's going to play a corner outfield. Not a Michael Elias draft pick, 2018 fifth-round pick, so he, the year before Elias took over. But we hear about Stowers, and we hear about Eusniel Diaz, but I feel like Newstrom could sneakily make his way onto the big league roster. Maybe not opening day, but he will at least get some spring training at-bats, I imagine. And if he plays well enough to start the year at Norfolk, maybe you give him an opportunity in the outfield next year. Yeah, from a guy who hit two homers in 2019 to see the eye-popping power that Robert Newstrom has this year, really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, all right, my next, I, I'm handing up the next superlative. That goes to best pitching stuff. And I know I said I was going to try to deviate from the obvious answers here, but Brendan, I just couldn't do it. Grayson Rodriguez has the best stuff in the Orioles farm system, and it's not even close. And he probably has among the best stuff, if not the best stuff, among pitching prospects in all of baseball. Honorable mention here would go to D.L. Hall because he has incredible stuff, but the command is not there. Grayson Rodriguez has three pitches that are graded, according to MLB Pipeline, on this, the 20 to 80 scale as 60 or above. Fastball, slider, and changeup. That is incredible to have that kind of stuff to go to. So we'll see exactly how it translates as we expect him to probably pitch at AAA next year to start the year, although Michael Elias said not a requisite that he will start, that he needs to pitch at AAA before he comes up to the big leagues. I imagine they'll give him at least a few starts in AAA before he comes up to Baltimore, but ridiculous numbers, 14 strikeouts per nine, which was a two strikeout per nine jump from 2019 when he was also one pitcher of the year in the Orioles minor league system, and a three strike, that was his three strikeout jump, per nine since 2018. So he's gotten better every year. His ERA has gotten lower every year. So when people ask why has Grayson Rodriguez gone from number 18 overall pick to the best pitching prospect in baseball, it's because he has consistently improved every year. Yeah, and it's the off-speed stuff that has really set Grayson Rodriguez apart this year. The fastball is dominant, and if he wanted to, he could probably cruise through the lower levels of the minors with that fastball alone. We saw Keegan Aiken do it for yeah. a while. He had a dominant fastball in the minor leagues and just kind of cruised. But Grayson Rodriguez has really put a lot of time into honing that off-speed stuff, and 
And that's what's going to make him a really good major league pitcher is the fact that he can use his off-speed stuff in any count and he can play it off of the fastball. And those three pitches, you'd hope when you're getting a big league starter, he's going to have a a solid fourth pitch. That's probably going to be his curveball. So we'll see how that develops. But to have three pitches that are very much above average is a good starting place. Yeah, next superlative here, Paul. Best pitching command. Not best pitching stuff, best pitching command. And I'm going to give it to Drew Rahm. There were a bunch of good candidates here, but Drew Rahm, the self-proclaimed crafty lefty in the Orioles minor league system, 4.62 strikeouts per walk across Aberdeen and Bowie in 2021. And he also did it with a lot of volume, which was the impressive thing about Rahm. He struck out 120 batters and walked 26. So he is not walking a lot of guys, but he's also striking out a lot. He had over 10 strikeouts per nine, so he was still being aggressive, and he was still getting those strikeouts. He also had a 318 ERA and allowed only 12 home runs over 107 innings. That's insane out of Drew Rahm. A fantastic season, and the command was fantastic all year. Yeah, he he is another guy who was in this system before Michael Elias took over. He was drafted at a high school. I believe he was a Kentucky commit at the time. So we've seen Zach Lowther come up. We've seen Alexander Wells come up, those crafty lefties. Drew Rahm might have slightly better stuff than those guys, I think, on paper. So And he's still young at a, at a young level. Those guys, uh, Wells was a an international signing, but uh, Lowther pitched at Xavier for a few years. So he's still... To be at the double-A level and to experience the success that he did at a young age, he's still, what, 22 years old? Yep. So to have that is is definitely a good starting place, I think, for Jerome. Yeah, Garrett Stallings gets an honorable mention there as well, had a good strikeout-per-walk ratio. But the thing that was so impressive with Rom was the strikeout numbers. Yeah. So he's still being aggressive even though he's not walking a lot of guys. He also looks much different physically. We went down and interviewed him in 2019 when he was with Delmarva, I believe, and he was... Still, you know, he was like 19 years old, I guess, and he was skinny and just kind of didn't, you know, hadn't filled into his body yet. And then we interviewed him in Bowie, and he's just ripped. He's got, yeah. he's got the beard now. He's just full grown, and it's just a massive difference. Uh, he clearly spent, like a lot of guys did, spent 2020 getting big and staying in the gym. Yeah, and for a crafty lefty, it helps him with the fastball velocity as well to yeah have kind of filled out a little bit. His fastball is up to, what, 95, 96 at this point? Yeah, um, definitely definitely good stuff from Jerome. Next up, best pure contact hitter. And again, I'm going with the chalk. I'm going with Colton Kowser, a top five prospect in the Orioles system because he legitimately has the best contact bat and maybe the best pure bat in the Orioles system. He is a 60-grade hit tool coming out of the draft, which is he was one of very, very few prospects to have that high a hit tool. Connor Norby had a 60 hit tool as well. He hit 507 games in the Florida Complex League, and then he hit 347 in 25 games in low single A Delmarva, which means he led the organization with a 375 average. No one was even close to that batting average wise, and we saw him hit a few homers as well. We know that he has gap to gap power if he needs it. But he has the bat-to-ball skills that you crave out of a prospect that you're getting in with a top-five draft pick like they did last July. Yeah, by all accounts, Colton Kowser was a very safe pick with the number-five overall draft pick because that bat is going to play. 
Yeah. You would expect Colton Kowser maybe not to be hitting this well in the lower levels of the minors, but Colton Kowser should be dominating the lower levels of the minors with that bat. And he's probably going to move up very quickly considering how well his bat has translated so far. Yeah. I mean, he is the real deal from that perspective. I know there were some questions about him coming out of Sam Houston as to because he was kind of a late bloomer there, how sustainable that was. I think we're starting to see it is incredibly sustainable. Yeah, and for a corner outfielder, I mean, you're not going to get 40 home runs out of Colton Kowser, but if you get a corner outfielder that hits like 320, yeah. I, I don't know if he's going to hit 320 in the majors, but if he hits above 300 in the majors, like, you're going to take that. Well, also, we have Cedric Mullins entrenched in center field right now in Baltimore, but... Known power threat, Cedric Mullins. This is true. Kowser can play center as well. Yes. So if... Cedric Mullins is not on the team in a few years. If Colton Kowser, if he, Cedric Mullins goes down with injury, you know that it, it's not just an Anthony Santander. He can only play one of the corner outfields or DH. Kowser can legitimately play center, so that gives him an edge as well. Yes, I would agree. I mean, Colton Kowser, super promising. Uh, I'm going to shift over to best pure power hitter. Please do. For this superlative. And this one was a little chalky as well, but... He kind of had to go with Kyle Stowers for the best pure power hitter in the Orioles system. Led all Orioles minor leaguers in home runs this year with 27. And he did it across three different levels of the minor leagues, which was the most impressive thing. He went throughout three levels. The skill jump in pitching is going to be increasingly difficult any level you go and he was able to keep up the power numbers he had a 514 slugging percentage he also had 23 doubles and a triple so he was getting a ton of extra base hits Adley Rutschman of course is another one that I could have put for this category and then another honorable mention goes to JD Mundy at a 536 slugging percentage the home runs he was leading Orioles minor leaguers in home runs for a bit but then fell off a little bit uh, he had 15 homers. J.D. Mundy did 20 doubles between Aberdeen and Delmarva. So Mundy gets an honorable mention there as somebody that, again, was pretty unheralded, was an undrafted free agent signing from the 2020 draft class. So Mundy gets an honorable mention, but Kyle Stowers, the Stowie Powie, translated across three different levels of the minors. I, coming into this year, would never have expected Stowers to be the best pure power hitter. I no. thought if he's going to get some kind of superlative, it would be... Most improved, which, you know, he did. He could but have, yes. He, he has more of an all-around game, or at least he did coming out of Stanford. That, that was not, he did not have a, an above-average power tool when he was the second-round pick coming out of Stanford. He's, you know, still kind of tall and somewhat lanky. We saw him at the ballpark. So to think that he still has his body to fill out, and he said he's going to do that and reach another level power-wise, in addition to playing quality defensive outfield, with the ability to fill into center and maybe the, the bulk slowed him down a tiny bit so that he's relegated more to a corner outfield spot, but you take that if, if you're taking a huge jump in power. Right. Uh, so I did not expect him to be the best pure power hitter. I thought that award would go to somebody who, coming out of the draft, like a Kobe Mayo or a Billy Cook who they took in the, in the draft. So I did not expect it to be Stowers, but good for him. Yeah, Kobe Mayo, another honorable mention, had an unbelievable season in the lower level of the minors. Yeah, he hit for contact as well, which right. was surprising from him, uh, but good to see. All right, next up, best pure fielder. Now, this award, I think, probably prior to this year would, would be 
Caden Grenier, he's viewed as maybe the best pure fielding prospect in the Orioles system. But I went and looked at, at who had high hit or high field tools, according to Fangraphs, according to MLB Pipeline. Joey Ortiz, he had another season that was uh, shortened by injury, unfortunately. He was a fourth-round pick in that 2019 draft, the first Elias draft. He is graded as a 55 field and a 55 arm. He can play second base. He played 10 games at second, four games at third, 20 games at short. He's a shorter guy, and he's a little bit bigger as well in terms of, you know, his bulk. He's not exactly, a you know, a Stowers kind of lank. But he can play all three of those positions at a pretty high level. So his ability to bounce around the diamond, I think, will help. And we already saw him make some spectacular plays. I know... Uh, on the Verge was one of the accounts tweeting a lot of the plays that he made, and it's a shame he had a season cut short by injury because he got to Bowie, he struggled at first, and then he was getting his feet under him. He was used all around the diamond, and then he gets that injury that ended his season prematurely. But New Mexico State product, I expect another jump from him in 2022. Yeah, not a super highly heralded prospect, but if you can play all three defensive infield positions really well, that's going to help you get to the major leagues. There's always going to be room for a utility guy on the bench who you can plug and play defensively pretty much wherever you need him to be. Yeah, and then Reed Trimble, I would say, would be my honorable mention. He was an outfielder that was taken in the second or third round, I believe, uh, in this past draft. So didn't really get a whole large sample size from Trimble, but they say that he has great fielding tools uh, and a good arm as well in one of the outfield spots. Yeah, Reed Trimble is incredibly fast, and that's going to help him pretty much anywhere in the outfield. Still very young, so we'll see how he develops in the minor leagues. Next superlative here, Paul, most surprising season. There were a ton of candidates for this that I could have picked, but I'm going to go with Gene Pinto. Somebody that uh, Steve Molesky often talked about on O's Extra and the On the Verge podcast seemed to love as well. Gene Pinto was the lesser-known player in the Jose Iglesias trade behind Garrett Stallings, who was kind of the prominent prospect in that deal. Gene Pinto appeared in 14 games between the FCL and Delmarva. He had a 2.30 ERA, over 11 strikeouts per nine. He struck out 84 batters, walked just 17 in 66 innings, and he only allowed three home runs. By all account, the stuff is just absolutely electric from Gene Pinto, and that was his 20-year-old season. So Gene Pinto has a chance to move up, it sounds pretty quickly, throughout the Orioles minor league system because the stuff is there and This could be somebody that we haven't really talked about much in terms of the future Orioles rotation, but if he keeps pitching like this, he's going to work his way into that conversation. We always talk about guys outside of the top 10 Orioles prospect list having to make an impact for this rebuild to work. It's not just guys outside the top 10, guys outside the top 30. Exactly. They're going to need a lot from the guys that are maybe we're not talking about right now, the guys that are coming up through their system that... A lot of guys that were recent draft picks or recent trade acquisitions like Pinto that don't garner a whole lot of attention, but that's where organizational depth is built. And when you you see a playoff team, you know, in the doldrums of summer and they have injuries and they're affected by, you know, guys going down, having depth guys to fill in 
is going to be absolutely massive. And and it gets you through a 162-game season. It's not just about having the top-end talent. We believe that they will with Adley and Grayson and those guys. It's having the organizational depth to say, hey, we need a spot start on a July late July afternoon start in Seattle. Who can who can take the ball for us? And giving the ball to somebody that you have confidence in is a is a huge benefit to a team. Right. And odds are you mentioned the top 30 guys. Odds are that not everybody in that top 30 is going to pan out at the major right. league level the way that you would have hoped. So you need guys outside the top 30 that you weren't expecting to succeed to actually succeed in order to balance the guys that were expected yeah. to succeed that did not. Absolutely. That's the whole point of organizational depth. And Greg Cullen gets my award, my superlative, for most underrated. Another guy, not in the top 30, but another guy who was in part of the 2020 trades. It was a considered not a throw-in, but was a lesser piece to the A.J. Graffinito, came back in the Tommy Malone deal. Uh, he finished the season. Now, he had injuries to start the year. Finished the year 19th in the organization with an 827 OPS across three different levels, which was 19th in the organization, only 38 games. So, you know, smaller sample size for him because of those injuries, but can play several different out, several different infield spots, second base, third base as well. He's going to the Arizona Fall League to get more reps. Again, don't expect major things from this guy. I don't expect him to be a stalwart at second or third in the big leagues, but having a little bit of organizational depth in the form of 24-year-old Greg Cullen, I think could be just another guy that you throw into the mix as a potential depth piece. Yeah, you just need minor league options yeah. at this point, especially in the Orioles infield where there are not a lot of solidified pieces, even at the major league level. The more depth you have in the minor leagues to just have options for guys that you could potentially call up to the majors could be huge over the next few years. Absolutely. All right. That, that does it for our superlatives. Yes, congratulations to all you minor league players that don't know that you got these superlatives. Should we make paper plate awards and we should hand them out? And we will send we'll them mail to them. them to them. <laughs> <laughs> They'll say, what is, what is the Mass and All Access podcast? Exactly. And we'll say, we don't even know. All right, let's talk about the Orioles' rebuild on a macro perspective, Brendan, and talk about how far the Orioles have come because we are now three years, three full seasons into the Michael Elias tenure. We're coming up on the three-year anniversary uh, of Michael Elias' hiring. It's coming up in November. So what has he done in this organization over the three years that he has been here? And he took over a project that was a massive, all-encompassing project to overtake. And it's not... There's a reason Michael Elias is not just the general manager. There's a reason he also has the executive vice president title in his title as well. And that's because he has done a full-scale rebuild, not just of the roster, but the fact that they just broke ground in the new Dominican Academy. He is overseeing a massive project, and it's not just everyday roster moves. It is a massive, massive undertaking that he has had to uh, take over since he joined this Orioles organization. Yeah, there's usually the four things that Mike Elias himself mentions when he talks about what his goals were coming in as general manager and, and vice president. The first one being trying to get top-end talent in terms of prospects. Second one being getting organizational depth in terms yeah. of prospects. The third being trying to get out from some not-so-great contracts that he was hampered by early on. And the fourth being 
getting involved in any way in the international market. And I think it's fair to say that he has accomplished all four of those goals so far. Yeah, and the last one I think you could say is maybe the most underrated. The fact that he was not only able to establish a presence down there and hire Kobe Perez, who is a veteran of the international market, to start to turn, you know, churn in some talent from the international market, but to literally build a building down there. Yeah. It hasn't been built yet, but it's going to. And create a home for these guys down there, I think, was a, a massive step. It, it It's going above and beyond just saying, all right, we have an international presence. We're signing guys now. It's to say, no, this is a this is a part, a huge part of our organization that we are committing to for the long term. That's a that's a big investment to build a building and create an infrastructure down there. Yeah, and it's hard to overstate how important the international market is. But look at the even just the AL East. Some of the best young players in the AL East were international signings. Yeah. And some of the best players around baseball were international signings. There's teams across the majors that are pretty much built from their international signings, and the Orioles haven't had any of that yeah. over the last few years. Turn, yeah, tur- turn into the playoffs this year. Yeah. Turn on you know, the ALCS when it starts up. Turn on the you know, NLDS and NLCS when that starts up. You will see a ton of players on all three of those rosters of the remaining teams that were signed internationally either by the team that is playing in those games or by another team and they were traded for. So yeah. th- that's where, that's a, a huge portion of Major League talent comes from. Yeah, I mean, the Blue Jays, the Rays, the Yankees, the yeah. Braves. I mean, so many of these top teams around baseball are built by the international market. Any Anytime you're looking at a guy and saying, I don't remember him in the draft, where did he come from? A lot of it comes from <laughs> there, right. you know? A lot of it comes from him signing signing him as a 16- or 17-year-old kid. So that's that's where you're getting your value. But international market aside, you mentioned the fact that Michael Elias came into this organization with a clear plan to build a sustainable pipeline of minor league talent coming up through the organization, getting top-end talent, and getting depth in that organization. And I tweeted out... A, the other day, a, at Paul Mancano, give me a follow. Uh, at Brendan Morty, give him a follow as well on Twitter. Subtle plugs. A, <laughs> not very subtle. Not subtle at all. A graph of the Orioles farm system when, essentially when Michael Elias took over, I did 2018 midseason. So it had already accounted for, excuse me, for the trades of Yusniel Diaz and Ryland Bannon. And, and those guys were already in the organization. So it's, you know, we're giving the, the Dan Duquette era the credit in terms of getting those deadline deals in 2018, and then comparing it to the 2021 midseason prospect rankings. And this is according to Fangraphs, and the reason I used Fangraphs is because it, to me, has the most uh, steady kind of rating system through the years. I think MLB Pipeline somewhat has a sliding scale in terms of the tools and the grades, and it's also harder to go through their archives. So, you know, keep in mind, this is just one outlet that is reporting this but Fangraphs is is well trusted I would I would say in terms of prospect rankings yeah don't have to agree with every ranking that they have and I certainly don't however comparing the 2018 Orioles farm system to the 2021 Orioles farm system there's no comparison not only is the the top end talent significantly better in the current Orioles farm system but they have much more depth and they have far less risk than the 2018 Farm system. So you look at 
future value and risk, which are two factors that Fangraphs takes into account. In 2018, the mid the, the top-ranked prospects in the Orioles farm system were Eusniel Diaz, Ryan Mountcastle, D.L. Hall, and Brett Cumberland, which was the most surprising name on the entire list. All of those were rated as a future value of 45-plus, and none of them were ranked in Fangraph's top 100 prospects in baseball. The rest were 45s, so a step below 45-pluses. Those were, you know, Austin Hayes, Grayson Rodriguez, Hunter Harvey, Luis Ortiz. There were five 40-pluses, and then there were 1940s. This is out of the top, you know, 30 or so. Look at now the, the current Orioles farm system. And keep in mind, top-ranked prospects in the Orioles farm system in 2018 were 45-pluses. Adley Rutschman is a 70. <laughs> You're starting off strong. Yeah. Grayson Rodriguez is a 60. D.L. Hall is a 55. So you have three guys that are already ranked higher than anybody in the Orioles farm system was in 2018. Then you have three 50s, Colton Kowser, Gunnar Henderson, Heston Kerstad. Again, all better than 45 pluses. So now you have six guys that are all better than the top guy, Yusniel Diaz, in 2018. And all six of those guys are ranked in the top 110 by fan graphs of prospects in baseball. And three of those guys, Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, and Deal Hall, are ranked in the fan graphs' top 20 prospects in all of baseball. So already, you are seeing the top-end talent be much, much better than the talent that was the top-end, quote-unquote, talent that was in the system three years ago. Yeah, and the projections for this current farm system are unbelievable for the top-end guys that have been added since this 2018 season. But if we're looking at the rebuild as a whole, like, yes, the projections for this 2021 farm system are great, but let's also look back at that 2018 mid-season prospects and see what has become of those prospects, sure. right? Because that's how you are going to evaluate a farm system and how well they pan out. Those 2018 top prospects, like you mentioned, Yusniel Diaz, Ryan Mountcastle, D.L. Hall, Austin Hayes, Grayson Rodriguez. Yusniel Diaz was the top prospect at the time. Obviously, he has not panned out the way that the Orioles have hoped that he would develop. But Ryan Mountcastle appears to have more than solidified himself at the Major League level. He's a Rookie of the Year candidate this year. He's the first baseman of the future for the Baltimore Orioles. Austin Hayes appears to have solidified himself in a corner outfield, whether it's left field or right field. He is, hopefully, if he stays healthy, going to be a significant contributor for the Orioles going forward. He has a, he has a floor, I think, of a very above-average fourth outfielder. Right. Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall are not at the major league level yet, obviously. But in 2018, they were not the top prospects that they are right now. And that's a credit to the Orioles minor league system for developing these guys. So yeah. of the top prospects in 2018, really Yusniel Diaz is the only one that has not developed the way that you would hope. You've got two major league contributors in Mountcastle and Hayes, and D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez have done nothing but improve over the last few years. And then still looking at 2018, looking at the mid-tier prospects a little bit, mm -hmm. Ryan McKenna showed some really good flashes this year and might have carved himself a role for the major league team next year. Keegan Aiken showed some pretty good flashes. And then Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther, and Mike Bauman were not fantastic this year, but again, showed enough flashes to say, you know what? 
they will hopefully be contributors going into next year and over the next few seasons. Yeah. So even the mid-tier prospects from 2018 have developed pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you have not just the top-end talent, but you have much more depth. Right. Uh, and sometimes you see some of those guys from that 2018 list fall out of that list. And part of it is they're getting pushed down. A lot of, you know, sometimes they fall off and the talent doesn't quite materialize into production like you would hope. Like a Neil Diaz, he has fallen down in part because of the fact that he has co- is coming off a couple injury-riddled and down production-wise seasons. But the other part of it is he's getting pushed down because there's much more talent at the top than there was three years ago. And not just the depth of talent. It's the risk level of a lot of these talented players. And so, as mentioned, Fangraphs does a risk assessment they give it on a low, medium, high risk assessment for all of these prospects. And, you know, again, you can quibble about w- which guys are high risk and which are not. I, I disagree with some of the, the things here. They, they say Heston Kerstad has medium risk. I'd probably lean towards high at this point in his career. They, they might have evaluated that before he suffered, uh, you know, the heart condition that he has now. Uh, so not entirely agreeing with, but you look at the overall picture to get an idea of it. Back in 2018... 14 of the Orioles' top 30 or so prospects were considered high risk. 13 were medium risk, and five were low risk. Mountcastle, D.L. Hall, Brett Cumberland, Austin Hayes, Grayson Rodriguez were all considered high risk prospects. You've already hit on Mountcastle, uh, hopefully hit on Hall, probably hit on Grayson Rodriguez, uh, and and hit on Austin Hayes. So, you know, you could get those high pros- high risk prospects working is good. But also consider Mike Elias is not just drafting and bringing in talent that is, you know, extremely fickle or there's high variance to these guys. He drafted Colton Kowser in part because he knew that he was a safe pick. Right. He knew that he had, you know, maybe not the highest of the ceilings of the guys taken in the top five, but he definitely has potential to be an everyday outfielder at the big leagues right and he's adding to a pretty unbelievable list of prospects that Mike Elias has added over the last few years if I may run through some of the top guys here Paul Uh, it includes the number one prospect in baseball Ali Rutschman the number one pitching prospect in baseball Grayson Rodriguez and then Gunnar Henderson, Colton Kowser, Jordan Westbrook, Heston Kerstad, Kyle Bradish, Connor Norby, Kyle Stowers, Taryn Fabra, Kevin Smith, Hudson Haskin, Kobe Mayo, Jemai Jones, and Michael Hernandez. It's a lot. It's a lot of talent. That's an unbelievable amount of talent that you have added over the last three years. Yeah. And, and they, to, to finish the comparison about risk, it's, though a lot of those guys on the list, just anytime you have depth, that mitigates risk because you're adding right. a backup piece to a backup piece to a backup piece, and and you never know which one of these guys are going to work out. It's a crapshoot. We all we know the draft and and farm systems growing talent is a crapshoot. But the Orioles have brought in a lot of guys that are are not high risk, are lower risk because that's how you build a team as well. When you have guys like Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson are considered medium risk. And those are top-end talents. Colton Kowser is considered low-risk. So you had 14 prospects in the top 30 that were considered high-risk in 2018. Now you have 10. You have 12 that are medium-risk. You have 11 that are low-risk. So they're, they're actual quality pieces that are likely to hit, um, and in addition to the top-end talent. So it's, it's in 
addition to building the depth, your backup plans, your plan Bs, are likely to be replacement level or above players, and that's what you want. Yeah, you've got safe guys at the top with players like Adley Rutschman and Colton Kowser, and then the depth, like, worst-case scenario, you have good players on your bench that you can either trade for higher-level veterans or are just there in case some of your top guys don't work out. Yeah. But the goal of organizational depth seems to have been more than accomplished over the last three years for Elias. And you see playoff teams have their hearts ripped out and have their seasons ended by a lack of depth oftentimes. Right. I mean, look at, you know, the Angels are, are hardly a, an example that you want to follow. And, it, it, uh, you know, we use them as a bad example all the time, but I'll do it again here. The Angels lose Mike Trout, and it's impossible to lose the best player in baseball and not experience a drop-off. But every year it feels like the Angels lose one of their best players. They don't have a, they don't have a suitable backup. That's the problem. You see good organizations like the Oakland A's uh, you know, or the Tampa Bay Rays be able to fill in for all of these guys at an above-average replacement level so that one or two or three of your better players going down doesn't tank your season. Right. And the Orioles are not there yet in terms of worrying about, you know, their season getting tanked by injuries, but they will be in several years. They're hoping to be. So if Adley Rutschman goes down, you hope that you have a suitable backup uh, who can fill in, and that's why you draft catchers, to be able to provide you with some depth. So... All to say, Mike Elias has accomplished those goals that he set out to. And now that we're three years in, those goals check the boxes across the board. You turn the page to what they have to do going forward. And you look at what where these three years have put them amongst other teams. And we looked at some of the, the other rebuilds around baseball as well. You could make a solid case that the Orioles are not in a perfect position by any stretch, and Mike Elias, like we have said, has not done a perfect job, and he will acknowledge that. However, they have put themselves in a great position going forward, which is exactly what you would hope, considering the tough three years that they have been through at the major league level. Yeah, uh, real quick, I just want to address a comment on Facebook. Uh, Jim says uh, Boston is rebuilding, and they're in the ALCS. Uh, No, no. They're not rebuilding. They have the seventh highest payroll in baseball, including some really highly paid veterans like Chris Sale and J.D. Martinez. Uh, so I would not call the Boston Red Sox a rebuilding team, even though they traded Mookie Betts. That wasn't really a rebuilding move. That was a we don't want to be above the luxury tax move. Uh, so we will not be using the Boston Red Sox as a comparison when we are looking at other teams like the Orioles that are rebuilding because uh, the Red Sox are not rebuilding. Yeah, that's they, all. They I just wanted, to, just wanted to throw trading, that out there. Them trading Mookie Betts, they did a very soft rebuild, and Boston does this every four years where they do a very soft rebuild. They still have J.D. Martinez. Yeah, so the Yankees did a soft rebuild. They still rebuild have Chris Sale. They still, yeah. It, it, a soft rebuild where they still have the seventh highest pay. That's not a rebuild. No, it's not. Um, all right. So let's compare the Orioles to actually rebuilding teams. Yes. And the the way that we can look at it for right now is uh, comparing them to the other picks in the top 10. So the teams that have had the 10 worst win-loss records in 2021, how do the Orioles compare to those teams? Not the teams at the top like Boston. You can't compare the Orioles to Boston right now. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, but you can compare them to the Orioles, uh, again, un- unless we they institute a lottery 
you know, selection process for the 2022 MLB draft. Here's what the top 10 picks are going to look like. Orioles 1, Arizona 2, Rangers 3, Pirates 4, Nationals 5, Marlins 6, Cubs 7, Twins 8, Royals 9, Rockies 10. Take those 10 teams. You could make a solid argument that the Orioles are best positioned for the long-term future of those 10 teams. I can and I will. I think they do. That's, well, that's what we're going to argue. Let's get into it. Yeah. It starts to me with the most obvious, the number one pick. The Orioles have the best pick of all those teams. You have the best pick means not only that you have your selection of the top guy in the draft, but you also have the most bonus pool money to spend in the draft. That's a good starting place. The other good starting place is the Orioles already have the best farm system in all of baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. So you're adding the best potential draft prospect in baseball to a farm system that is already the most loaded in baseball, Brendan. Right. It's the number one pick in the draft getting added to the best farm system in baseball. There is not a possible better way that you could improve your farm system than that. The Orioles are already in a fantastic place where they have a lot of high-end talent in their farm system. That's one of the things that I'll mention when we look at other teams as well. There are other teams that have a bunch of top 100 prospects. There are other teams that have more top 100 prospects than the Orioles. But there is not another team in baseball with the number one overall prospect in the league and the number one overall pitching prospect in the league. That is the Orioles alone. And just to quash another comparison that we often see between the Orioles and the Rays and everybody says why can't the Orioles do what the Rays are doing they maybe can (laughs) I mean maybe not to the level of success that the Rays have but you know how the Rays have the best have a great team that just got eliminated unfortunately in the ALDS have a great team in the AL East with a low payroll they had the number one prospect in baseball Wander Franco that they got from the international market that they got from the international market and they have consistently year after year a top five farm system in baseball so that's how they're able to do it with a low payroll Mike Elias can't just snap his fingers and get the best farm system and the best prospect in baseball it's taken him three years but he's done it yeah so he can maybe do it from now on but that's if you want to compare the Orioles to the Rays it takes some time to become the Rays but Mike Elias has positioned them to potentially follow that path yeah and the Rays made a bunch of really good trades a few years ago that are now panning out. Yeah. You look at their rotation. Tyler Glass now they got in a trade. Shane Baz they got in a trade. Luis Patino they got in a trade. All of their best pitchers they have gotten by trading away their better veteran players. Yeah. That's so, how you have to do it. So further comparing the Orioles to these other teams that are coming off very bad years in 2021, the Orioles not only have the best number one pick, the best farm system, they also have the best top end prospects. Adley Rutschman is the number one prospect in baseball, so the Orioles have that. And they have the best pitching prospect in all of baseball, too, in Grayson Rodriguez. That's a good spot to be in. And then you look at the payroll. The Orioles have the fewest payroll obligations for 2022, and I know that there are detractors who will find that to be unsatisfactory. But here's why that's a good thing. (laughs) You don't want underwater contracts. Especially if you're a team that is outside of the top 25 in terms of market size like the Orioles are. They're just outside the top 25 
in terms of market size. So they're competing with some Goliaths, especially in their division in Boston and New York that are in great markets with, you know, a steady flow of cash always coming in because they are the, the Red Sox and the Yankees. Those teams can spend their way out of trouble if they absolutely need to. The Orioles aren't in that kind of position considering their market size. So to have very few underwater contracts, now they are still paying Chris Davis his deferred money for several years, and that's not ideal. However, he's no longer on their roster. He's not taking up a roster spot, and they don't have anybody like an Alex Cobb or an Andrew Kashner that they are, or look at Arizona and uh, Madison Bumgarner, that they are forcing to pay during years where, you know, that they are going to be getting below average production from a guy who is older. So it opens up the checkbook to potentially sign guys. You don't want, the Orioles had the, the worst record in 2021. You don't want that team spending a whole lot of money. You don't want that team with a high payroll. The worst position to be in is a bad team with a high payroll because you're already, you're shelling out your money and it's not turning into wins. Right. And Paul, I'm glad you brought up the major league team because if if I am to play Facebook commenter a little bit here, a lot of, of people will say, well, that's all fine and dandy. The minor league teams are great, but that isn't translating to the major league level in any way. Who, who says that's all fine and dandy anymore? Since, I don't know. Since like 1956. Well, I do, Paul. All right. Uh, so I want to look at some of the major league talent that is on teams in a similar spot in the rebuild. I'm going to knock okay. out Washington, the Cubs, and the Twins because they are at very different points in the rebuilds. They have just pretty much started it. Yeah. Like the Nats have Juan Soto. Awesome. The Twins have guys like Byron Buxton, but it is going to take them a while to get the deep farm system that some of these other teams have. Right. So I'm just going to look at teams that are in a similar point in the rebuild to the Orioles being the Diamondbacks, Rangers, Pirates, Royals, and Marlins. And I'm going to look at the major league team yeah. and look at, okay, once these minor leaguers get called up, who are they joining? at the major league level. So I'm looking at good young players on these teams. With the Baltimore Orioles, you have a 26-year-old all-star center fielder in Cedric Mullins. You have a rookie of the year candidate at first base in Ryan Mountcastle. And you can throw some other guys in there as well. You could throw in an Austin Hayes and some other good pieces at the major league level that are on the younger side for the Orioles. But I'm just going to say, for the sake of argument, Mullins and Mountcastle are sure. your two go-to guys. The Arizona Diamondbacks have Zach Gallen, good starting pitcher, 26 years old. Outside of him, they have Cattell Marte, who's 28, and they have some older 20s guys or younger 30s guys that are really their only contributors this year. Right. So the Diamondbacks, Zach Gallen. Adolis Garcia on the Rangers, that's their Rookie of the Year candidate. He's already 28. Yeah. The Texas Rangers do not have a lot of good young talent at the major league level at this point. Nathaniel Lowe at first base, he's okay. He's 26. He's no Ryan Mountcastle. No. He's fine. The Pirates have Key Brian Hayes and O'Neill Cruz, who have both pretty recently been called up, and they are both unproven. Key Brian Hayes had a really disappointing year, and O'Neill Cruz did not get a lot of action this season. Yeah. That's pretty much their best young talent at the major league level. Kansas City's best players are Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield. Yeah, Salvador Perez is a 31-year-old catcher, and Whit Merrifield is 32. They really don't have any younger talent on that team. Brady Singer is promising at starting pitcher, but he didn't have a great, great ERA this year. The only team that I think has comparable, if not better, young talent at the major league level currently 
is the Miami Marlins. They have Jazz Chisholm, who is an exciting young infielder, and then their starting rotation is insane with really good young pitchers. They've got Sandy Alcantara, Trevor Rogers, Jesus Lazardo, Pablo Lopez, and Sixto Sanchez. Yeah. So of that group, the Miami Marlins are really the only team that you can look at and say their major league talent that is young and is going to be with the team for a while is as good as the Orioles. Yeah, and aside from that miracle, and we can give them credit for that, you know, 2020 playoff run that they made last year, which during a regular season, a 162-game season, they would never have made that playoff run. But yeah, okay, give them credit for making that playoff run. Good for them. Aside from that, they've had a lot of bad years. More recent bad years this decade than the Orioles have. They didn't have the ALCS run in 2014 and, you know, winning the division a few times in there and the the best AL record in uh, over a five-year stretch. So they've been rebuilding for quite a while, I think you could say. So yeah. that's how they've gotten some of that talent. And But credit to them for building the organization the right way and building up their talent pipeline. That's what the Orioles are hoping to do. Yeah, if there's one other team in the majors that I think you can look at and say that they have had as successful of a rebuild as the Orioles, it's the Miami Marlins. They right. have seven top 100 prospects to go along with that really good young talent in their pitching rotation. But again, they have seven top 100 prospects they do not have a prospect that is as good as Adley Rutschman. They right. do not have a prospect that is as good as Grayson Rodriguez. So, yes, they have had success in their rebuild. And, yes, that starting rotation is young and promising. But they don't have the talent that the Orioles have in their farm system. Yeah. And they don't have the hitters that the Orioles do that are younger on the roster right now. And... I will say, you did kind of brush aside the Juan Soto for Washington. Yeah, but again, they are at a different right. place. Yeah, exactly. They just started the rebuild. Right, so they you know, they don't... They have uh, a, a, one of the better players in all of baseball who is 22 years old in yeah, Juan Soto. Yeah, that'll help. The, re, the way that they got him was they signed him six years ago back in 2015 as an international free agent. The Orioles had no international presence to speak of right. six years ago, so... The hope is that you can sign somebody, maybe not a Juan Soto, but somebody, a good international prospects who will develop and three, four years from now, maybe make their way to the big leagues and be impact players. So right. the Nationals were had a good foundation for a long time and a good talent pipeline for a long time. Michael Elias is having to basically start this thing over from scratch. Right. Th that's the reason I didn't include right. the Nationals or the Cubs or the Twins because they have all been successful over recent years yeah and like this is year one for their rebuild and and to you know play devil's advocate here for all the people saying yeah well those teams you would still rather be those teams because they recently won world series you know that the, the yeah. Nats, the Nats won a world series in 2019 the cubs won a world series in 2016 have made playoff appearances. So, yeah, you would rather, you know, the Twins were in the playoffs for a couple of years in a row, won 100 games a couple of years back. I get it. You would rather be in those situations. But, but three years from now, you might not be. Right. But those teams are just beginning their rebuild process. They're just embarking on this. So they may be down here at the bottom, make, picking high, highly every single year for a few years. Now, a couple of those teams have the ability to spend their way out of it. The Cubs have the number three market in baseball. They have a team, an owner that at times can use his money and, and throw his money around. They also had a very good team to begin with that they dealt from, you know, that they were able to get top prospects from because 
they had an Anthony Rizzo and a Chris Bryan on their team already. Similar, and a Javi Baez. Similar to the Nationals having an Javi Baez. Similar to the Nationals having Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. They go get an, a K-Bert Ruiz, who's a, a top-catching prospect in baseball, because they're already dealing from a position of depth. Mike Elias was never dealing from a position of depth. The Manny Machado trade had already happened by the time he took over. The Jonathan Scope trade and Kevin Gaussman trades had already happened by the time he took over. So he had very little talent with which to deal. And uh, he did not have a, a great roster to deal from to begin with. That was a major avenue for him to get top prospects that was not afforded to him and right. an advantage that was not afforded to him. And as mentioned, doesn't is not sitting in a particularly high marketplace in terms of you know, TV rev- revenue market coming in. So he's not going to be able to, in theory, spend his way out of it. Now, the Orioles have consistently shown when they are good, they will spend the money that they need to uh, in order to bolster the major league team. They had one of the highest payrolls in baseball when they were good. So the thinking is they're going to do that again when this team shows enough talent, uh, shows enough promise at the, the big league level. So yes, they are in a disadvantageous position, if that's a word, than somebody like the Cubs or, or the Nationals who are in top or top markets in the country, but they are building the depth now in order for it to work out. And the, the other caveat is, I get it. The Orioles have had some major struggles at the major league, at the major league level for three years now. This is where they should be. That's the argument that you know, we hear. Okay, great. They have a ton of minor league talent. That's what should happen when you are the way that you are at the major league team. They're the, at the, they're the only team in baseball that's lost 100 games in back-to-back 162-game seasons, discounting 2020. No other team has lost 100, lost 100 in 2019 and then lost 100 in 2021 like the Orioles did. But the hope is they, they are right where they should be. It's not easy to get here. The harder part is going to be building this thing into a winning product. Right. We're not there yet. That's what 2022 and 2023 are going to be. So I get them saying, this is where you should be. But we're giving them credit for getting to this place. Right. And bottom line, I think the Orioles are maybe not in the best position of any rebuilding team. The Nationals are in a fantastic spot with having a generational talent in Juan Soto. And the Marlins are in a fantastic spot as well. But I think of the 10, 11 teams that we looked at, we didn't even mention the dumpster fire that's the Colorado Rockies. Of those 10, 11, 12 teams that are in rebuilding mode right now, you can make a legitimate case that the Orioles have the best, if not one of the best, if not top three. Yeah foundations for a future which which of these teams other than the Orioles would you rather be in a in a position the only one again that I think you could make a case for is either the Marlins with that pitching staff that pretty much everybody is 26 or below and has had really good years or the Nationals that have Juan Soto and it's easy to rebuild a team around Juan Soto, easier to rebuild a team around Juan Soto. I think those are the only two teams that I can realistically look at right now and say that I would rather be in their spot in the rebuild. I think the the Pirates are in an okay spot, like you mentioned. Pirates are in an okay spot. They have Henry Davis, you know. They they don't have the the talent at the Major League roster, as you said, that the Orioles do, but they they have a few prospects in the top 100. Rangers, I think, are in an okay spot. Just got Jack Leiter. But yeah, I mean, I would I would say I would 
only rather be, if I had to pick a team, the Marlins or maybe the Nats because you already have a, a, one of the best players in baseball. But again, for both of those teams, you can make a legitimate case on the other side that, no, I would rather be the Orioles. Right. Because you have, again, the best prospect in baseball, the best pitching prospect in baseball, the best farm system in baseball, and the number one overall pick. And with Miami, that's not a team that has ever shown the ability to spend. No. Ever. Even when they're good. Even when they win the World Series. They still, they traded everybody. They don't want to, you know, that was years ago, but at least the Orioles have a history of when they're good, they'll spend. Right. The Marlins don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't have to touch on it too long. We're already way into this, but the, the exact spot you don't want to be on is the Rockies. When we were going through this exercise, you said, uh, we were coming up with the list, and you, I said, yeah, I looked at the top nine picks, and you said, how do the Rockies not have a top nine pick? Because we thought that they were terrible this year. Because they're team is bad their team is bad they have the 10th pick which is not a great spot to be in you know you're just on the very fringe of the top 10 obviously you already have huge payment commitments to next season they're 14th in 2022 payroll yeah and their best player is probably going to leave in free agency definitely going to leave not probably he is going to leave in free agency and you got nothing for him you got nothing for him so not only do you have a middle of the road payroll you're committing 69 million dollars to players on your team next year but you're not good, and you are in another, the best division in baseball, or second best, this year. And you are paying, In the NL West. And can't emphasize this enough, you are paying the Cardinals yeah. to have Nolan Arenado. And you have the 26th ranked farm system in baseball. Your top prospect <sighs> is Zach Veen, who's the 55 overall prospect who's in baseball, like and that's Who's like pretty good. Who's pretty good, but that's it. That's a position you don't want to be in. You never want to be spending a whole lot of money and not be very good. And you don't want to be paying other teams to field your best player yeah, every yeah, day. To, yeah, not just to eat the contract. And then you don't want to, you know, know that your star player is leaving yeah. and not get anything for him. Exactly. Well, thanks for following along for our rants. Uh, we Sorry, really Rocky Spence. Uh, uh, live on Facebook, of course. If you don't watch already, you should be watching live on Facebook and YouTube. Give Brendan a follow at Brendan Morty. I am at Paul Mancano on Twitter as well. Congratulations and thank you again to Bobby Blanco. Yay. Very big. Huge. Absolutely big weekend for Bobby Blanco. Uh, we will be back in a week. Going to be doing some, maybe next week, maybe the week after. I have a free agency bracket that I want to roll out in Ooh. terms of top. We're going to come up with the top however many free agents we think the Orioles might sign. And we're going to go down and vote and pick one free agent that we think the Orioles will sign this year. Carlos Correa. We'll see. I think he's (laughs) going to be a 16 seed, Brendan. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be a one seed. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Subscribe on all your favorite platforms as well. Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can catch the Mass and All Access podcast. We will be back in a week. Thanks for tuning in.